Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Um, great to have everyone uh, live here at the Grand Rounds on this very warm Tuesday morning, uh, middle of winter in Connecticut. But I, I know spring is coming. I, I do hear that. So the, the sun is going to be shining very quickly. Uh, and again, thank you for joining us. We, have a, we do have a number of announcements before I introduce our speaker. Uh, the first one is uh, that you can register and you can follow that little cue bar. Like in the Super Bowl, we'll actually keep it in one place. It won't be moving around, so it'd be really easy for you to scan it. Uh, and then log in and, and sign up for the uh, presentation, Psychotropic Updates for Primary Care Practitioners, three of outstanding psychiatrists. There's plenty of room. Please uh, go ahead and, and do that if you, if you have uh, the ability to join that uh, lecture this evening from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. Uh, I do want to take this moment to, uh, to you know, share my gratitude uh, with Liz Anderson, who um, has been really making, she's really responsible for all these lectures, the grand rounds, Ask the Experts, series uh, in conjunction with her CME team uh, uh, taking place uh, and has been really uh, remarkable. Liz, um, sadly for us, uh, is, is moving on to do other things in her professional life and to be with uh, her, her beautiful family. Uh, I just want to express, Liz, to you uh, our sincere gratitude for everything you have done for us, for our pediatricians, for our providers, our team. Uh, it, what, it's really been a, a lifeline for, for all of us. And uh, I'm certainly going to miss coming to the studio here and not having you here um, on Tuesday mornings and Fridays, uh, where it, it's really been, a, to me, has been a, a source of, of joy just to you know, have, have you here and, and everything you have done for us here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, we will miss you. We will have uh, eternal gratitude for everything you have done for us. And remember, the doors are open for you to come back whenever you want. Um, we, we are here. We're not too far away. So uh, again, uh, you know, our gratitude to Liz Anderson. She is greatly responsible for everything that you see here on, on Tuesdays, uh, on these uh, webinars in the evenings, and uh, for the Ask the Experts. Uh, so, th so thank you very much, Liz. Really appreciate it. Now, let me move on now to introduce our speaker. And uh, uh, I, I have to tell you that, you know, that uh, Dr. Sina is really is a force. Uh, she is uh, someone who I, uh, I, I admire tremendously. Uh, you, she's got more energy than I could ever imagine having and uh, has an exemplary career. Let me just tell you a little bit about her. Uh, she is a pediatric cardiovascular surgeon. Uh, her education is uh, exemplary. She did a six-year bachelor's in MD accelerated program uh, from uh, uh, Lehigh University and then Drexel University in, in Philadelphia. And then she, in addition to that, she received a master's in public health from UCLA uh, and then uh, got into, you know, these very incredibly competitive programs for general surgery where she did her residency at UCLA and then uh, she was a cardiothoracic surgical uh, research fellow also at UCLA and then a, a surgery fellow at UCLA and then went on to do a congenital heart surgery fellowship at Emory University. 
she's triple boarded in general surgery, thoracic surgery, congenital heart surgery, uh, and is truly uh, an outstanding uh, young physician who is uh, in really uh, doing some tremendous things uh, in, in, the, in the pediatric cardiovascular arena. Uh, she works here at Connecticut Children with, uh, with Dr. Mello in, in our outstanding pediatric congenital heart program. Uh, Raina has uh, multiple interests, but the one that is really, is, uh, to me, is one that is specifically important is that she focuses on gender disparities. And, and very recently, uh, in 2021, she published uh, an article uh, that was, you know, in conjunction with Kathy Herbst here at Connecticut Children's. And, and the, uh, the title is, is related to gender disparities in cardiothoracic surgery. And they did a, a survey of, of the women that are in this field in, in the United States, and very few. I think that they surveyed 18 women amongst all the other men. And, and what she found was, was really interesting. I urge you to read this, this article. We can certainly share the link. Uh, but uh, obviously, there, there are multiple hurdles that have to be uh, that you have to go through, and, and I applaud uh, Raina for for the work that she has done in this arena, and then just for moving forward and and letting you know her skill uh, speak for her. Uh, and but it, it it is difficult, and so I so Raina, thank you for your leadership in this area. Uh, I I could not be more proud of what you have done. I know Dr. Fink is very proud of you as well uh, in this area. But today she's going to talk about. Uh, uh, you know, small left ventricular outflow tract defects and how do you manage them? And you'll see, I think, her skill set and her knowledge and her passion uh, will, will shine through this lecture. So, uh, uh, Dr. Sina, if you can go ahead and start your grand rounds, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Dr. Salazar, for that warm welcome. Hopefully, you can hear me well. Okay, just one small correction. I actually ended up going to USC and not UCLA for my general surgery training and uh, on the West Coast. That's a big deal. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry, sorry about Trojans, that. Trojans, <laughs> but thank you so much. So good morning, everyone. Um, today, I'll be discussing management of the small left ventricular outflow tract. I have no disclosures. Uh, the objectives of today's talk include reviewing the left ventricular outflow tract in terms of its anatomy and surgical considerations, discussing the principles in managing patients who present with a small left ventricular outflow tract, understand what are the surgical approaches, and discuss some of the current outcomes described in the literature. So beginning with the disease pathology, this is a schematic of what we would consider the left ventricular outflow tract. And it is important to understand that this is a multi-level description. Not only does this involve the aortic valve, which connects the left ventricle to the aorta, but it involves a region above and below where we consider this entire outlet from the left ventricle to the aorta as the left ventricular outflow tract, or perhaps better described as systemic outflow tract. So if there's any issue with any specific part of this tract, whether it be supra or subvalvar, so above or below the aortic valve, at the level of the aortic valve, at the aorta, all of this will lead to what is known as LVOTO, or left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. And essentially, this means there's an inability of the left heart to support systemic circulation. So the key concept that I want to discuss today is how we approach patients who have this pathology 
and promote a biventricular repair. There is a specific subset who will become single ventricle candidates. And today's talk is focused on the patients who are appropriate for biventricular repair. For that, we have to ensure that there are two adequate ventricles and that there are two adequate inflow valves, the tricuspid on the right and the mitral on the left. For this, it's really critical that we know the diagnosis of patients who may have a pathology involving left ventricular outflow tract. Why? As we all know, congenital heart disease is the most common congenital anomaly, and it affects up to 1% of live births. And of the patients born with congenital heart disease, almost 25% will have what's known as critical CHG, which means they'll require either a surgical or a catheterization procedure in their first month of life to survive. Therefore, having routine fetal echo to be able to diagnose lesions that are critical is very important. Currently, patients will be referred to fetal echo by echocardiologists, specifically after they have routine OB ultrasounds. And so it's really operator dependent whether or not a lot of critical lesions are suspected at the routine 18 to 20 week gestation ultrasound when a patient might be referred or perhaps they've had a family history or prior pregnancies that would warrant a referral to a fetal cardiologist. And there's plenty of literature that supports increasing prenatal detection leads to improved outcomes when it comes to these critical congenital heart disease lesions. Is there a role for prenatal intervention? One may wonder. So you have a pregnancy and the fetus has been diagnosed with a lesion such as critical aortic stenosis. Is there anything that can be done before the child is born? This is a diagram showing a percutaneous fetal valvuloplasty where there is a catheter going through the left ventricle into the left ventricular alpha tract. So the lesion is at the valve level. And in this diagram, it actually shows uh, supervalvar aortic stenosis as well. But the concept is whether or not intervening on this abnormal left ventricular alpha tract during fetal life and helping to enlarge it will have an impact on the child after they're born. So back in the 1990s, the first fetal aortic valvuloplasty was described. And this is performed at various centers, but the prognosis is really dependent on multiple variables in terms of the gestation, the age, the size, the remaining heart structures, and there are various selection criteria along with evaluation of risk to the fetus and mother before something like this can be considered. And ultimately, program experience also makes a difference. Nearby, this is often done in bigger centers, um, but whether or not this has led to a change in postnatal need for surgical or balloon valvuloplasty and need for intervention after birth is yet to be determined. So this is considered on a case-by-case -case basis and whether the patient has variants of left ventricular outflow tract 
for them to become a two ventricle or whether the patient would be a single ventricle candidate nonetheless are all the areas that are still being explored. So at the time of presentation, it really depends whether the left ventricular outflow tract is an isolated lesion, which would be in the case of aortic stenosis, subaortic membrane, or supervalvar aortic stenosis, so above or below the regions of the aortic valve, along with the valve itself. But sometimes our patients can have concomitant lesions, which are affecting different parts of the heart, both within and outside. That can involve abnormalities such as atrioventricular canal, Schoen's complex, where the entire left side of the heart is on the smaller spectrum and perhaps is um, also affected by something known as EFE or has abnormal myocardial function. Patients can also present with interrupted aortic arch. So the part that is connected beyond the left ventricular outflow tract has another anomaly that needs to be addressed. They may also have something called transposition of great arteries. So the ascending aorta arises from the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery arises from the left ventricle. The complexity of the management will increase as you have concomitant lesions. But the pathophysiology is similar. What happens with all of these issues is that there is pressure overload on the left ventricle because it has to pump against a fixed obstruction at one of these points, which leads to hypertrophy of the ventricle and that decreases myocardial filling and affects coronaries and leads to ventricular dysfunction, all of which increase the risk of sudden cardiac death. Therefore, preoperatively, it's important that we assess these patients in a meticulous fashion, starting with the exact dimensions of the LVOT. And now I'm gonna go over what are the areas within this that we look at to make a decision about surgical approach. So of course, we start with the aortic valve and the aortic root. So this means describing the shape, the geometry, and the dimensions of the valve and its surrounding structures. For example, bicuspid aortic valve is in fact the most common congenital cardiac anomaly, but having a bicuspid aortic valve does not necessarily mean the patient during a neonate or pediatric or even in adult life will necessarily need an intervention but it certainly increases their risk. Along with that, having a bicuspid aortic valve can have abnormal impact on the dimensions of the aortic root. Patients who suffer from connective tissue disorders will have abnormal geometry and are prone to dilation of the aortic root, the ascending aorta, and future risk of aortic dissection. So it's very important to understand what is the anatomy of the valve? Is it a bicuspid? or normal tricuspid leaflet, whether the root measures what it would be predicted to be for that uh, neonates gestation and their body surface area. Next, we assess the mitral valve. And similar to the aortic valve, the mitral valve also has various components. There are the valve leaflets themselves, there are the papillary muscles, 
there's the entire cordae and apparatus around the mitral valve that has to be assessed to understand whether or not this is not just an appropriate size for the patient, but is it functioning adequately? And is it functioning adequately to be able to handle the entire systemic circulation, all of the blood return that's coming back from the lungs into the left atrium? Will it adequately allow the left ventricle to fill and then go out through the left ventricular outflow tract? Assessment of the aorta is another key point when you're looking at the LDOT because this involves the ascending aorta, the transverse aorta, as well as the descending. And ultimately, looking at not just the LV function or systemic ventricular function, but whether or not the patient has any compromised biventricular function will make the decision to intervene at immediate points right after birth or whether we need to stabilize them for a period of time on inotropes, whether there's a need for temporary mechanical circulatory support, or whether or not a patient is born with such extreme dysfunction that they will need to be bridged to transplant in extreme situations. I'm going to begin with supervalvular aortic stenosis. This is the least common form of LVOT obstruction comprising less than 10% of the cases. They're often referred for surgical management. And here are some diagrams showing what the concern is. So this would be a description of the aortic valve leaflets and the aortic root, which is overall normal, but just above this at the level of the sinotubular junction where the um, aortic root meets the ascending aorta, you have a narrowing. And this will cause increased pressure on the left ventricle below this. And so to address the areas of narrowing, we usually uh, put patches in place to help enlarge and uh, change the geometry. And this has been proposed in several different ways. So this is one example called the Doty patch. There's the prom patch. And here's another schematic where some of the narrowing is addressed down to the aortic root. So looking at this aortic group from the surgeon's view, this is the right coronary artery, this is the left coronary artery, this is the non-coronary cusp, and you see a trileaflet aortic valve, which is likely functioning well and is adequately sized, but the patch that is in place to enlarge the supravalvular area goes all the way down to the aortic root. So this is considered the three-patch technique. And all of this is to help remodel the geometry of the ascending aorta where it connects to the aortic valve so that there's no obstruction to flow. Next most common is a subaortic obstruction, which is uh, about a fifth or so of cases presenting with outflow tract obstruction. And most often this could be a fibromuscular ridge that's just below the aortic valve but it could also be more complex where there is concentric LV hypertrophy. You can have spectrum of patients such as hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy that come under this, um, but it's really the symptoms and the echo gradients that are followed by our cardiology colleagues who will then refer the patients to the surgery. And this would be an example where, again, looking from a surgeon's view into the aortic root, here's the left coronary 
dividing into the two branches, the LED and um, CERC. Here's the right corner artery. Here again is a triluflate aortic valve. And when we look through it, we see that there is a ring of tissue that is abnormal. And so we work to excise that. A lot of times this type of thickened tissue will extend down into the LVOT and in fact be on the mitral valve as well. So it's really critical when we're assessing these patients intra-op that we look at the mitral valve leaflets, perhaps if there is uh, abnormal tissue there, we carefully excise it. And then the aortic valve itself can be abnormal. It can have uh, thickened commissures that are um, not as freely mobile as they should be. So we will work to release some of those attachments. There may be nodular um, areas that we can excise and thin out the aortic valve. And all of this is easier done in a older child that weighs more rather than a neonate. So these, this type of LVOT obstruction, we generally tend to operate on in patients who are older perhaps a few years to even towards um, being a teenager. But it's important that patients who at birth are diagnosed with any kind of aortic stenosis, subaortic obstruction are closely followed by the cardiologist and monitored in terms of the echo gradients across this. And in addition, we also take a look at the aortic valve function so that once there is resection of the subaortic membrane, patients can suffer, unfortunately, from uh, abnormality of the aortic valve function, even though it would be a trileaflet valve and adequately sized, the function of the valve can be impacted and these patients can have aortic insufficiency, which can compound the pressure that's already on the LV from obstruction and then have a concomitant LV dilation from aortic insufficiency. And this is just an example of this disease process is a spectrum and it can have multiple involved areas. And so once patients have this type of diagnosis, they really need to be monitored long-term and they really need to have multiple assessments of the entire structure. This is another example of when the heart would be uh, evaluated for subaortic resection. This is the aortic valve. So not only is there a ring of tissue below it, it can extend again down onto the mitral valve leaflets, such as here. This is the anterior um, leaflet of the mitral valve. And what you see here are the chordae attaching to the interventricular septum. And so we have to work to excise as much of this tissue as possible in the operating room without damaging the aortic valve or damaging the mitral valve. And another important part to consider is the fact that if patients had additional um, muscle from the interventricular septum that was thickened, causing obstruction and causing high gradients, and surgically the plan is to excise the muscle, this is the area below the right coronary cusp um, that the conduction runs. And so patients are at increased risk of heart block when we are surgically addressing this as well. So just again, to delineate the complexity of these cases. 
Now I'm going to focus on actual valvar aortic stenosis and uh, discuss some of the considerations here. So if a patient is diagnosed with a congenital anomaly of the aortic valve, this can be also due to several factors. One can be underdeveloped commissures. One can be thickened or fused valve leaflets. Or it could be that the annulus itself that holds the three leaflets of the aortic valve just never developed adequately and so is measuring smaller than what would be expected for the child. So in this schematic, this is an example of, uh, this is a cross-sectional view. Here's the aortic valve in the middle to highlight that there is normally um, continuity between the aortic valve and how intimate it is with the left atrioventricular valve or the mitral valve and the right atrioventricular valve and the tricuspid valve, but the pulmonary valve sits farther away. And this will come into play when I describe some of the surgical approaches to handling congenital aortic stenosis. So our patient population generally will present during infancy or as a child with something of this disease uh, pathology where you have a unicuspid valve, essentially the commissures have not fully formed. Um, and otherwise, we may also come across a bicuspid aortic valve where you have uh, two leaflets, but not uh, completely separated at the commissure. Whereas in older patients or what would be um, acquired cardiac uh, pathology of the aortic valve would be a rheumatic aortic stenosis or calcify and degenerative for older patients. So for congenital, we usually deal with the unicuspid or bicuspid. Once the child is born, the options include um, going to the cath lab for a balloon aortovalvuloplasty, where it's the same concept as what was mentioned earlier for fetal, where a balloon is introduced at the level of the aortic valve and inflated to help increase the surface area and the ability and help decrease the pressure that's built up on the left ventricle. And this is generally considered the first line of approach when we have patients that are neonates and have uh, concern for congenital aortic stenosis that's impacting their cardiac output. Some centers will advocate for surgery as the primary intervention for neonates. And um, the reasons for this are that whereas the balloon helps alleviate the pressure on the left ventricle um, just as well, it does so in a fashion where it's not under direct visualization. When the balloon is inflated, it tears open the aortic valve at um, the hinge points that are the weakest, whereas if we address this surgically, we're able to evaluate the valve and do planned and uh, thinning of the leaflets or work on the commissures under direct visualization so that um, perhaps we can salvage the valve um, for potential repair options in the future. But uh, several studies between the two approaches have shown that uh, across North America, generally cath lab intervention is considered first um, line of therapy with the thought that the patients will require aortic valve intervention, again, either by cath versus surgery in the future, because it's a temporizing measure. And for that reason, 
the thought process is to hold off any surgical interventions until the child is older, because that means a run on cardiopulmonary bypass, aortic cross clamp, and it's associated uh, and it's uh, and everything that's associated with that. So again, when looking at the LVOT, uh, the critical numbers we look at are the aortic valve annulus, and we look to see that it's at least the amount of the patient's weight plus a millimeter. And this can vary from um, different viewpoints and imaging modalities, but most often this is a general rule of thumb on a transthoracic echo that we see this. So again, looking at it on different levels, but the entire outflow tract, not just at the level of the valve, but the portion just below the valve needs to be adequately sized so that the left ventricle can function well. And the reason for this is because if you have a recurrent LVOT obstruction for reasons either after surgical intervention or cath lab intervention, they all increase morbidity and mortality for the patient. So it's important to have everything planned at the first intervention and understand where the pathology is and and address all levels of the obstruction so that we can minimize future morbidity. And for this, the surgical options would include something such as aortic valve repair versus a replacement. And that means also enlarging the root, so the area that the aortic valve sits within. And the procedure to do that is called the Ross Kono, or another procedure called the Yasui which can be performed in a single stage or um, in two stages. So I'm gonna start out with the Ross operation and describe what that is. So essentially what this is, is, is the replacement of the diseased aortic valve with an autograft, meaning the patient's aortic valve, which is unsuitable, for their left ventricle will be excised. The patient's native pulmonary valve will then be removed and reimplanted, and then we'll take a cadaveric homograft and put that in the position of the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery outflow tract. So this is originally described in the 1960s. Um, the advantages for this procedure are the fact that the autograft has growth potential. So once it's placed in the neal aortic position, meaning the uh, replaced area, this will continue to grow with the child. And because of that, we don't have to worry about anticoagulation. Because with the current options, if a child or a neonate requires valve replacement, the options are mechanical valve, which again would have anticoagulation and does not grow with the child, meaning the patient is going to have subsequent reoperations. We can do tissue valves that are either made from uh, bovine pericardium or cadaveric um, valves, but all of them tend to clock tend to calcify early on and do not have longevity. And then finally, this last option with the autograft. 
In addition to replacing the valve, uh, most often along with this operation, we perform a cono procedure, which means enlarging the annulus of the aortic valve. So not only are we replacing the valve leaflets, we're also enlarging the space from the left ventricle to the aorta. This is a diagram showing the setup. So in this view, we see that the ascending aorta has been cannulated. So this gives blood to the entire body. Here's the ascending aorta cannula. We have bicaval cannula to drain blood coming back from the heart. So here's the cannula in the SVC, here's the cannula in the IVC. And then we apply the aortic cross clamp and give cardioplegia in the aortic root. And so this is how we set up for cardiopulmonary bypass where we exclude the heart from the circulation. So the cardiopulmonary bypass will manage systemic circulation. The uh, lungs are shut off and we are able to arrest the heart with the high potassium containing solution and then do our intracardiac work. So in this case, we see the RVOT, which means the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery tract is opened up. And this is the autograph, the pulmonary valve. We inspect to make sure it is trileaflet or functions well. And uh, we excise that. And then prepare the native left ventricle outflow tract where the native aorta was. Remove the coronaries from the native aorta and the aortic valve is removed and then take the autograph and implant that into the position. So you can see there's multiple suture lines. This uh, procedure involves suturing at the base and this part shows the cono operation where we enlarge the annulus itself. The autograph sits behind this and then we suture in the coronary buttons. So here's the right coronary artery, here's the left coronary artery, and then we anastomose the autograph to the ascending aorta. So this is just the suturing that's done on the left side. And then we have to put in a new conduit or um, most often a homograph from a cadaver and then replace the connection between the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery. So there are several advantages and disadvantages to this approach. Um, as you can see, it's quite complex in terms of the um, surgical procedures involved, the anastomoses, the suturing that's involved. Um, it's critical the way we harvest the autograph that uh, we have some coronary arteries that are of concern to us. And then when we put in the new conduit, we know that this conduit would not last the patient their lifetime. So it is something that's going to be replaced either surgically or through catheter options in the future. But the advantages of the ROS procedure are that the left ventricle outflow tract, which is the more complex tract, because it feeds not just the coronaries, it feeds the systemic circulation, is more stable with this approach, that the child will continue to not require anticoagulation, the valve will continue to function well, and addressing the right ventricle outflow tract is easier, quote unquote, in terms of surgical and re-intervention. 
So we decrease uh, the risk and shift it from the left ventricle to the right ventricle outflow tract, essentially, with this operation. And so there are several um, questions that come up as to why to do this procedure. Some are firm believers of this, and some are, are adamant that this is converting a one-valve disease to a two-valve problem. But there's lots of literature, um, one recently published, uh, looking at a systematic review of pediatric patients, over 3,000, in fact, where uh, the median age was almost 10 years old, and they followed these patients for about six years with uh, low but acceptable early mortality, um, which is higher in neonates. So that would be an example of why we try to temporize patients with critical aortic stenosis, utilizing um, catheter-based approach so that when they're a little bit older, perhaps one or two years of age, and they continue to have problems with the aortic valve, we could potentially offer the ROS procedure. However, the late mortality is much lower, and the freedom from reintervention on the left ventricular outflow tract is fairly low. So the proponents would argue that this is a good operation because it utilizes the patient's native valve, it provides good hemodynamics, avoids anticoagulation, because managing anticoagulation in a neonate and an infant and then a child is pretty challenging. And then, of course, it has growth potential. So reoperating in that region, which sits very um, close to all the other structures and it's in the back of the heart, it's very challenging. We always have to cross comp the aorta to work on it as much tougher compared to having to do conduit replacements on the anterior portion or the right ventricular outflow tract portion. Now I'll describe the UCB procedure, which is another option to address the small left ventricular outflow tract in neonates or infants. So this is a one-stage operation originally described in the 1980s, and it was for interrupted aortic arch and aortic uh, atresia along with VSD patients, but it can also be performed in two stages. Similarly, it requires that the patients have two well-formed ventricles. And so that's why I had mentioned in the beginning of the talk that the focus today is making sure these are adequate uh, two ventricle repair patients. And um, the concept of a UCU procedure takes two other surgical procedures and really combines them. So one is called the Norwood Arch Reconstruction and the other procedure is called the Restelli. And so I'll go over these using diagrams. But essentially a Norwood is to increase the size of the aortic arch because patients born with this can often have a very small ascending aorta or a transverse aorta and then takes the native pulmonary artery and the native aortic root. We combine the two in something called a DKS and use that as the systemic outflow tract. And then we do a second part of the operation, which um, is also known as the Restelli, where we close the VSD so that the blood from the left ventricle goes out through the new aortic tract that we have constructed, and then we'll put in a conduit. So this sounds very complicated and it might be better to look at it from diagrams. 
Um, again, this is a view of the heart on bypass where we have um, ascending aortic cannula. Um, that's not shown in this diagram, but it would be somewhere here. You have bicaval cannulas to drain the blood away from the heart. The heart's been arrested. Here's the aortic cross clamp. And then we opened up the right ventricle to take a look at this VSD that the patient has. And we make it so that the blood coming from the left ventricle goes out through this opening into what's going to be the new aortic root. So this is called intraventricular baffle. And again, just goes to show the complexity of this type of work because we are working within the heart, um, often in neonates. There is concern for um, conduction system uh, injury. And so patients will have... Uh, monitoring for any heart block potentially. We're also working around the tricuspid valve within the heart. So there's a lot of structures that we're mindful of and just shows how complex something like this is. This is what it would look like once we put in a baffle. And then this shows what the DKS is, meaning we take the native pulmonary artery, the native aortic root, we combine the two together. So now this forms so the native pulmonary valve is actually going to be functioning as the neo-aortic valve because the native aortic valve was too small or diseased for whatever reason to be able to serve that purpose. And then the arch has also been reconstructed for the aorta to make that adequate size. And then we put in a conduit um, or a uh, preserved uh, homograft from the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery to establish pulmonary blood flow. And so this is what the completed operation would look like. So outcomes of USUI have been described in the literature. Um, there is one major study in 2012 looking at a single center review over a decade where they did this on 21 patients, uh, reported no early mortality, 44% reintervention rate, but that is because of the RV to PA conduit, which is a homograft, which will calcify and the child will outgrow it. Therefore, they need to have that replaced. And in this paper, what they were evaluating was whether or not doing that procedure, a usually in uh, all in one stage or primary versus in two stages would have any difference in the results. And essentially they showed that the results were comparable. And then almost a decade later, there was another review, single center as well, because these are very complex and uh, cases that are uh, not as common. And that's why the single center reviews have lower number of cases to report. But similarly, uh, this review also reported no mortality up to five years, similar reintervention rate of about 40%. And the point I wanted to make was that now more and more we're doing these cases as primary. So in this case series, 75% of the patients underwent primary repair as opposed to stage. Again, uh, exemplifying the involvement of um, of neonatal perioperative congenital heart surgery patient care, the anesthetics, the ICU management, the surgical techniques, management of cardiopulmonary bypass in neonates have all evolved and have all been improving significantly. So pre-op management, we talked about fetal assessment. And in that 
uh, it's important to understand that when we know a baby is going to be born with um, any issues, we can plan a delivery with the whole team around. We can do specific postnatal measurements of the LVOT components that were described earlier. And with that, we can determine whether or not the child should be started on PGE to help uh, stabilize them. We need to make sure that they are hemodynamically stable. We do not uh, want to take patients who are unstable to the operating room um, because that will just increase their morbidity and mortality. Uh, for this, we evaluate them on a multi-organ level in terms of understanding that whether or not they have um, any issues with um, renal function, hepatic function, um, cranial and neuro evaluation. And then, of course, um, part of cardiac workup always involves genetic screening. Um, patients who have uh, these anomalies can often have uh, dejorginum or other uh, deletions, and having a genetic uh, abnormality increases your morbidity. So the recent cases we did, um, we had prenatal diagnoses of aortic stenosis. We had borderline but acceptable left heart structures. And part of that assessment also involves whether or not the left ventricle forms completely towards the apex. And so I just wanted to highlight three recent cases. One, uh, the first patient, we did a neonatal arch repair and a surgical aortic valvotomy when the patient was just a week or so old. So we enlarged the native aorta, which was too small for the child. And then we allowed the child to grow, but he still had aortic stenosis. And so we monitored and we elected to have a cath procedure performed to help relieve some of the persistent gradient at the level of the valve. Now, again, with that, when the valve is opened up, not only do we worry about recurrent gradient, but the valve can then start leaking, so aortic insufficiency. And again, we allowed the patient to grow as much as possible with this pathology and then elected to perform a Ross Kona when he was one year old, because by this time, the amount of gradient across the aortic valve and the leakage was backing up into um, his lungs, causing pulmonary hypertension, and in fact, then backing up into the right side as well, causing tricuspid regurgitation. So this was the operation performed. We took the native pulmonary valve, put that into the place of the aortic valve, which was removed, and then put a conduit. The next patient um, was six weeks old who had a balloon valvotomy. Um, and then we performed a Ross Kono and his clinical course was complicated by the mitral valve. Even though his initial assessments, we always knew that the mitral valve was not quite normal, but we elected to work with it so that, again, the patient could have a tube ventricle repair. And he was doing well initially, but we ran into um, the issues persistent after the ROS. And so this may have been a case you guys um, have read about on our recent um, case descriptions, where we put in the smallest mechanical mitral valve the size of a dime. So this patient ended up also requiring intervention on the mitral valve along with the aortic valve. And so um, after the ROS operation, um, he had a successful mitral valve replacement and was managed and um, was doing well and growing at home. 
The last patient is a neonate um, who presented with, again, a very complex left ventricular outflow tract where the valve was abnormal, the arch was small, and below the valve, he had uh, uh, concern because of a PSD and that the subvalvar area was small. So we elected to perform the Yasui procedure. And again, this is where we do two parts. We enlarge the aorta. So that's called the Norwood type part, along with taking the um, native pulmonary valve and combining it with the aortic valve so that the two function together as the neoaortic valve, and then putting in a conduit after we have closed um, the VSD or what we call the intraventricular baffle. So this patient was operated on back in December. Um, after we do these types of procedures, it's really important to have long-term surveillance on these patients because the risk of recurrent LV outflow tract obstruction remains. And again, going back to the rule of thumb, making sure when we plan the operations that it's done in a patient who have um, the adequate weight and or predicted aortic valve annulus. And if they don't, we need to have other strategies in place. Because if we have to reintervene for similar obstruction, every intervention will be associated with higher morbidity and mortality. Uh, specifically, things such as risk of heart block goes up every time we have to intervene. The risk of the intraventricular baffle leak or inability of um, proper biventricular function goes up. Um, addressing any coarctation that recurs along our suture lines in the aorta is also important. That can be done in the cath lab with a balloon dilation or again surgically if uh, the patient is going back for any other replacements. And then I also mentioned the conduit changes for the right side are uh, endemic because we know we're putting in a homograft that that will calcify it and unfortunately does not grow with the child. It does not last the child's life. And so the patient will require two to three, um, at least in the course of their life. And we're moving uh, more and more towards um, cath lab intervention for these so that um, things such as the malady valve and harmony valve and such can be utilized. But um, each has, each approach, surgical and percutaneous, has its advantages and disadvantages. So it's important to make this type of decision in a multidisciplinary format so that the appropriate management can be planned. So in summary, the take-home points I'd like to uh, reiterate are that it's important we have prenatal diagnosis for patients presenting with left ventricular outflow tract obstruction so that appropriate counseling to the parents and uh, planned delivery can be planned. Once the child is born, it's crucial that we have good postnatal assessment and we need to image the left ventricular outflow tract and preoperatively stabilize the patient. And then ultimately, when they're taken to surgery, we want to ensure a, a successful outcome by having um, all the interventions in a planned way. And that in the post-op period, we monitor these patients critically um, such that we know what their hemodynamics are. We're managing outflow tract, their inflow. We're managing um, not just their ventricular function, but really all the components that have an impact on surgical outcomes of 
congenital heart surgery patients. Um, that is very important because once we can get them through the early period, which is where they're at high risk of having decompensation, their long-term uh, outcomes tend to do uh, are much better. But again, keeping in mind, even after discharge, these patients require lifelong surveillance. And so uh, transitioning to adult congenital um, cardiology teams once they are of an adult age is also important because now we have patients who've been born with this or had um, interventions in early life that are now adults and will continue to need congenital heart uh, interventions. And so having the right team involved for those patients is key. Thank you very much, and I'll be happy to take any questions. Thank you, Reina, for uh, a spectacular presentation. Um, I think I finally understand this. Uh, I appreciate it, uh, although I am absolutely certain that I cannot even get close to the uh, to those valves. Uh, you guys do amazing things. Uh, we have a, a couple of questions deck. Uh, the first one is from Dr. Kamaitis. Um, and, and Liz, uh, uh, he's saying best of luck to you and thank you for everything you have done in the past. Uh, in the, now the question for you is in the past, resection of a subaortic membrane had to be repeated often because of regrowth of the membrane. Is that still true with modern methods? Um, I think it's going down, but it's difficult to quantify that because uh, we're taught and when we operate that it's not just uh, always limited to that area. And so we, take great care to make sure we inspect the mitral valve, look at the anterior leaf of the mitral valve in the operating room, uh, potentially see if the growth is on the undersurface of the aortic valve and really try to take our time, be deliberate and um, do the most resection possible without causing any harm to the valves. Thank you. Another question is, does planned delivery mean C-section? Um, not necessarily, but planned delivery just means we know when to expect that the whole team will be around and available if and when the mom goes into labor so that we have appropriate um, intensive care resources, PGE, the team to do postnatal echo available right away. Uh, Raina, a question for um, for the future. We, you know, we have, uh, we're in the process of setting up a a, um, a fetal medicine, fetal surgery program. Uh, and do you expect that in some of these diagnoses, the intervention will be prenatal, uh, either you know through some form of intervention or surgical? Um, I think several centers have been exploring this question, but we don't know the answer. I think the research is promising, but as of now, this has not become the standard of care across the spectrum. So it really depends on the anatomy and each fetal involvement is different of the left ventricular outflow tract. But it would be very exciting to know that we could potentially offer that here and then um, uh, look at each patient on a case-by-case -case basis. Got it. And, and then, uh, you know, just one, one last question, if you can clarify the, 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 the incidence. I know this is one of the most common congenital heart defects, but what's the actual incidence per, per thousand of these defects in, in, in your experience? Um, it would be on the spectrum of less than 5% of the critical congenital heart lesions. So um, it's not the most common that we come across, but again, even the spectrum of left ventricular outflow tract, if you just look at bicuspid aortic valve and aortic stenosis, it's more frequent, but the entire spectrum, and if you were to say it's a complex 
left ventricle outflow tract obstruction, those are not very common. Well, again, thank you, uh, Dr. Sina, for an outstanding grand rounds and sharing your expertise with us this morning. Uh, uh, great attendance, and uh, I'm sure everyone has uh, learned quite a bit uh, and is uh, more instructed now moving forward. So I greatly appreciate your, your input and preparing for this presentation. I, I do want to extend uh, my, my gratitude on behalf of all of our teams to, uh, to the cardiovascular surgical teams, to the cardiologists, to our intensivists who work so hard with these patients post-op, to the nurses and the respiratory therapists and everyone else that's around the kids in the, uh, in the pre-op and the peri-op, uh, and even the ultrasonographers that do the prenatal diagnosis. So this really takes a village, and, and I think you've shown why the outcomes are so good is uh, really a result of a, of a team, team approach. So again, thank you, everyone. Please uh, join us for Ask the Experts on Friday. Uh, it will be Dr. Hassan Al-Shabib uh, and uh, uh, James Enos, one of our pediatric cardiologists. I think there are a lot of questions about back to sports, and he will be providing you a very detailed analysis. So when do you get an EKG? When do you call the cardiologist? I know that's a question that many pediatricians have, and, and, have a, and there's some confusion on that. So he will pro, uh, provide some clarity. Uh, Dr. Shriver's on service, and that's why he can't be on, but uh, Dr. Al-Shabib you know, will no doubt do a great job. Next Tuesday, Grand Rounds, uh, and Drs. Marianne Kelly, and Carla Pruden uh, will tell you all about simulation here at Connecticut Children's. They do a tremendous job. So with that, stay warm, be safe, and we'll see you on Friday. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand rounds.